Happy 2017, everyone. To kick off the new year and a new political era in many ways, we held our first live recording of Flatbush in Maine on the 11th of January. The event was called Civic Responsibility, A View from the Archives, and we discussed historical thinking as a form of civic engagement and looked into the archives for lessons to glean from historical Brooklyn activist movements. We also got a little help from BHS President Deborah Schwartz, New York City Council Member Brad Lander, and an audience of thoughtful, engaged citizens. It's a special episode, and we hope you enjoy it. And don't forget to subscribe to Flatbush in Maine on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to us on. Rate us and leave us a review. Here we go. Welcome to Flatbush in Maine. Tonight, we're joining you from Brooklyn Historical Society's beautiful Athmer Library with a terrific audience. Audience, say hello and show us you are here. As we do each month, we will be making history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush and Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 150-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts. In case you couldn't figure it out, <laughs> Julie Golia. And Zahir Ali. <laughs> and so here we find ourselves, um, as we say each month, at the uh, intersection of Brooklyn's past and its present. Good evening, everyone. My name's Deborah Schwartz. I'm the president of the Brooklyn Historical Society, and I want to welcome you to Civic Responsibility Then and Now of You from the Archives. It's great to have you here at the Brooklyn Historical Society, and this program, you should know, marks a number of important occasions for us and for all of us, I'd say. Uh, it is the first time that we'll be doing a live broadcast of Flatbush in Maine, our wonderful monthly podcast produced by none other than your two hosts for the evening, Julie Golia and Zahir Ali. Uh, it is a program also that's dedicated to the memory and work of Martin Luther King, whose birthday is, as you probably know, January 15th. Uh, his birthday is celebrated throughout the country on the third Monday in January. So we hope that this program tonight might be the kickoff of your celebration of the legacy of Dr. King, and we encourage you to attend other celebrations that are scheduled around the city next Monday. Um, there's a lot happening in Brooklyn alone, and I hope you'll check it out. Um, before we get started, I'd also like to read for you a statement that was recently crafted by our education department, uh, and it was sent to teachers, administrators, other educators, uh, and I'm reading it to you because I think it reflects a great deal of who we are as an institution. So uh, please indulge me. It uh, seemed particularly important at this moment in time. We believe history is an interpretive project that requires empathy and imagination. History requires an openness of mind, allowing our opinions and understandings to be shaped by evidence and to evolve when new information is encountered. We believe that the more time people spend learning about history, the more attuned they will be to issues of justice, past and present. In the days and years ahead, we will continue to lead students and the public through our archives, exhibitions, through the streets of Brooklyn to contextualize their present and prepare them for the future. We are deeply troubled by reports of bigotry and harassment within our communities. It is clear that the work of building an equitable society, an important goal of any great social studies and civic engagement, is far from finished. Our students, our partners, and colleagues identify with some of the populations most targeted by racism, xenophobia, Islamophobia, and sexism. We find hope at the same time in the knowledge that while American progress has not always been an upward slope, incredible social change is possible. We look to the actions of the past 
Brooklynites as case studies. The abolitionists who fought to end slavery in the 19th century, the women welders and riveters in the Brooklyn Navy Yard who fought for equal pay for equal work during World War II, the courageous civil rights activists who fought to desegregate housing, schools, and workplaces in the 1960s, and so many others. Their voices, photographs, papers, and artifacts can educate, galvanize, and challenge us all to be engaged, empathic, and informed citizens today. So with that, it is my great pleasure to introduce my very much admired colleagues, Zahir Ali and Julie Goya. Thanks, Deborah. Thank you so much, Thank everybody. You so much. We're so glad to see so many different kinds of people here. We see Brooklynites and New Yorkers. We see activists. We see historians. We see history buffs. And we also see literally walking in and taking off of his coat <laughs> an important politician and activist here in Brooklyn, Brad Lander, who is a city council member for our 39th district. And so we thought it was a great way to kick off and have Brad come up here and say a few words about the topic that we're going to be digging into tonight. Thanks for coming, Brad. <laughs> Well, thank you guys for doing this. I'm a big fan, uh, and I can't wait. I can't stay uh, the whole time, but I'm looking forward to listening to the podcast. Uh, how great to be in the library. Usually we're downstairs for events, but this space is just magnificent. Uh, look, from the Battle of Brooklyn, when the Maryland 400 uh, stood firm at Battle Hill, to the extraordinary Brooklyn experience of the Underground Railroad, to Shirley Chisholm's unbought and unbossed, Resistance to injustice is deep in the history and blood and fight of Brooklyn. It's been necessary many, many times before, and it's necessary today uh, for sure. So I really want to thank the Brooklyn Historical Society for, as so often, reminding us that as we set up for the current moment, for the battles and fights and campaigns and organizing that we have to do, that there's a lot to be gained by reflecting on what that has looked like historically, that we're not reinventing uh, the wheel. There are new things about this moment, but the need for diverse people in Brooklyn to stand up against hate and injustice and corruption uh, and say, we have values here that are different from that. We are not going to allow immigrant neighbors to be targeted. We are not going to allow uh, women's reproductive health care to be taken away, right? That's 100 years ago. It was started in Brooklyn, uh, you know, the first Planned Parenthood clinic, which we talked about and celebrated here, out in Brownsville. That's a piece of Brooklyn resistance, um, and we remember that, and we're going to stand up for it today. Um, and we're not going to allow uh, Muslim neighbors to be demonized and put in a registry. We know that history. Um, and on and on down the line. And remembering and learning and paying attention to that history is an important part of what we're going to do. We have already seen in the week since the election a real outpouring of resistance organizing in different neighborhoods uh, around this borough. Just in, in my district, kind of in and around uh, Park Slope, you know, just a week after the election at Congregation Beth Elohim, a 150-year-old piece of Brooklyn, uh, more than 1,200 people came out to start getting organized. And we did that with grassroots Brooklyn groups like the Brooklyn Movement Center from Bed-Stuy, like Make the Road New York, Born Out in Bushwick, um, the Anti-Violence Project, the Center for uh, Anti-Violence Education, great grassroots organizations to start thinking about how to stand up and resist together. Um, that has grown into a couple of additional meetings, each over 700 people. There are 15 working groups. The folks who held the Not In Our City signs at Grand Central after the uh, uh, Islamophobic hate crimes were Brooklyn residents who uh, got together and did that. When there was uh, anti-Semitic graffiti in Adam Yauk Park, just a few steps from here, and Islamophobic graffiti in Fort Hamilton Parkway, Brooklyn residents turned out and organized. Uh, last night, in front of our dear senator, the first Brooklyn senator in 100 years, uh, has got a big job on his hands. And to help um, remind him that we uh, have real strong need 
for tough questioning and a really no holds barred grilling of this bevy of billionaires uh, who are being rammed down our throats with insufficient vetting. Um, we want the, the Senate uh, minority to stand very strong. So there were 150 people out in Grand Army Plaza last night, uh, another great Brooklyn historic uh, location. And you're seeing that all over the borough. So we have our work cut out for us. I don't think we yet have all the right strategies in place to know exactly uh, how to do it. But what I have been very encouraged by is that that spirit, that desire to stand up strong together, recognizing Brooklyn's diversity, recognizing its history, recognizing its Brooklyn values, its New York values, um, are highly motivated. And if there is a silver lining, my, my daughter is a 13-year-old activist uh, in a lot of ways, and she said, you know, Four years from now, I hope what they'll say is he was good for one thing, and that was for kicking up a whole new generation of fierce activists who learned how to fight. Uh, and that's what we're gonna do our best to do, and that's what I look forward to learning, some of the lessons of history to help us. So thank you guys all for being part of it. Thanks, Thank, you. thank you. Thank you so much. Well, we're gonna touch on a lot of those themes tonight, and we're really excited. Thank you again, Brad. Well, this is our first live recording of an episode, and it's a very momentous month. We are coming up on the national observance of the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr., and we have just taken part in a historic presidential election, a fractious presidential election that uh, has been historic for many reasons. Yeah, and I think we're two historians who believe very strongly um, that you just simply cannot disentangle the past from the moment that we live in now, the society that we live in now, and the society that we sort of strive for it to be. And I think that's really what we want to dig in tonight, those connections. So Zaheer, I guess I want to start by just asking you the question that you raised in the beginning, which is what does a historian and what does historical engagement have to offer at this moment um, in our history? So I come at that question as an oral historian and um, you know one of the things uh, President Obama said in his uh, farewell address was that we have to pay attention and listen and that's what oral historians do we listen um, and there are different kinds of listening and so in thinking about the different kinds of listening that oral historians have kind of engaged in, and, and not just oral historians, but we all engage in different kinds of listening, that's what I'm taking my cues from. So the first, and they, they go from the most passive form of listening to the most engaged form of listening. And so the first form of listening we can call informative listening. That's you know, listening to learn something, right? Listening to collect information. You know, if you sit in a, a lecture or if you're sitting here now, you are, most of you maybe are engaged in, <laughs> hopefully this is informative, you're, this is informative listening. Um, part of informative listening means, you know, actually being open to hearing new ideas, um, transcending the bubble that we all have, uh, so that's informative listening. The second kind of listening is critical listening. So this moves a little bit away from the kind of passive, just like I'm just gonna sit here and listen to what the person is saying, to uh, I'm going to challenge and be challenged by what I'm listening to. And so critical listening means you kind of suss out what you're hearing and you make a decision about, you know, what you're what the person is saying, you know, yes, I can get with this. No, I can't get with that. That's a little bit more engaged. And that is the kind of um, interpretive work that uh, Deborah mentioned that, you know, historians do and that we all do when someone's talking to you, you, you know, decide what of their what of what they're saying you want to to kind of work with. And in, in the context of that, you know, that kind of interpretive work means challenging um, what you're hearing and being challenged by it as well. And then finally, um, there's empathetic listening. And empathetic listening is probably the most engaged, active form of listening because that is listening to understand. So you're not just passively, um, you know, taking in what you're being told, 
you're not just, you know, kind of meeting the speaker halfway in this kind of negotiation of what they're saying and a kind of critical engagement. You're trying to get into the speaker's shoes, right? To empathize means to, to feel, not for, but feel with, right? To feel what that person is feeling. And I think that informs civic engagement because that is, that is the kind of listening that I think we probably as a society need to do more of because that kind of listening is concerned with, um, I won't say winning people over, but really understanding what someone is saying, even if you don't agree with it, even if you want to challenge it or it challenges you, it means trying to understand where uh, they're coming from. So those are that those are the three things that I kind of think about, you know, as 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 an oral historian, um, you know, for me, civic engagement means gathering as much information as possible, interpreting it and then finally trying to understand where people are coming from. Yeah, I'm struck by how much your approach is informed, of course, by your role as an oral historian. And it's. I'm so convinced by what you have to say, but it, people can barely turn their ears on right now. <laughs> I mean, it's it's it really does highlight to me one of the major challenges of this moment, which is the uh, the inability to even t t to hear the words that people have yeah. to say, rather than even take you through a series yeah. of steps of that. You know, and to me, it's like it highlights one of the challenges. Like, and you know, when Zahir comes at it from the perspective of an oral historian and. I, when I think about my answer to that question, a lot of it has to do with my interest in the way people interact with archival documents. And so this is something I've thought a lot about is the way that students, young and old, look at a document and can question it and can recognize bias and motivation in it. And the idea that that's not something that's intuitive, right? Right, right. Um, that's something that in a lot of ways has to be taught. And so... When I think about what's my role as a historian, how can I contribute to civic dialogue, I like to think that I model this in the work that I do, right? I like to think that in exhibitions, I can walk people through how we analyze a document in such a way that they might pull away lessons from that. We do the same thing in our podcast, I hope, right? Um, we do the same thing in our digital exhibits, um, presentations that we make, things like that. But one of the challenges, and I'm so curious to hear what you all think at the end about this, is are we talking to the bubble? Right. You're right. Like, right. Are we tr preaching to the converted? Are we? Are people who come to listen to this podcast or come to this museum are already open to things like that, and that there's a further divide that we're having so much trouble crossing? And I just still kind of haven't figured that out. Well, I mean, one of the reasons why it's it's so hard um, to engage in critical analysis. I mean, you have to be able to transcend your own bubble, your own framework, right? I mean, it, it, you have to engage in self-critical analysis and so you have to be able to step outside of yourself and um, to move out of the center to see what's there right and so I think you know one kind of bubble is you know can be your ideology our ideologies our our own kind of experiences um, another kind of bubble and this is from the his historian's perspective is is a time right yeah absolutely I mean particularly with the fast-paced way that um, information and ideologies are exchanged and and tweaked. Um, it is hard to even think about things within a year back, let alone right. in, like a hundred years back. But I, I actually take great comfort in what you're saying because I think that is maybe what historians can bring to this is a long picture, is a, con a very deep and long context. And I think that's maybe what we want to play with a little bit tonight is what does it mean to put this moment in time and King's legacy right. in the context of 70, 100 years of time. And what kinds of lessons can we glean from that that make us look at the moment that we're in quite differently? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think thinking back to the election, um, if you took a snapshot of, say, November 8th versus the morning of November 9th, you'd get two very different stories, right? Um, you, you had people 
who thought one thing was inevitable. And then when that didn't happen in, on November 9th, they were like, oh yeah, we knew this was gonna happen all along. You know, this is, this is, this is why the frame that, that we use mm -hmm. is so important. And I think, you know, there's one word that I know that we've, <laughs> we've kind of played around with and we're, we, you know, you have to forgive us because we sometimes as, as academics can like fall into jargon, but we're not gonna do that. But we will like kind of throw a few words out there. And one of the words that was, was really useful for us in thinking about the bubble or thinking about framing um, is hegemony. It's the, it's, this is something that we talk about a lot um, is, you know, what's the right way to convey the ideas that we have? But sometimes you just have to face an intellectual word head on and embrace it. So we've been thinking a lot about what it means to have a structure of ideas and laws and actions that are taken so for granted that they that they shape your everyday lives in ways that are almost in invisible structures that are difficult to put in front of people's eyes they don't want to look at them and they want to acknowledge them they're and they're because they're so pervasive yet so invisible and as Zahir and I were talking about this I got to thinking about a book that was really powerful for me to read as I think an undergrad and it's the, uh, a memoir by um, a woman named Ann Moody um, called Coming of Age in Mississippi. Anybody read that book here? A little applause, a little smattering of applause. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you all do because it's fantastic. And I always remember the way that she described Jim Crow, which we all know and think about pr properly as just a horrible, degrading system of power. But one of the things that is so powerful in this book is how quiet Jim Crow operates. It is ev your everyday life. Her life, actually, before she becomes a civil rights activist, isn't filled with violence. It's filled with everyday humiliations, right, and everyday injustices. And it's only when she becomes an activist that her life is threatened, that her family is threatened, and that the that structure of repression is revealed to be what it is. And to me, that that's hegemony, right? And so we've been really thinking through what are the hegemonic ideas that have shaped the period of the late 20th century up till today, and in what ways is that changing today? In what ways are those structures changing because of the political system in which we find ourselves now? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, um, another reference, <clears throat> this will be a very old hip-hop reference, um, the Run DMC song, It's Like That and That's the Way It Is. That, that is a reflection of an existence under, hege you know, hegemonic system, right? Where you, you look around at the state of society and you think, well, it's like that. Like it, it's just naturally occurring phenomena. Inequality is just naturally occurring. The condition of life that people are living is naturally occurring. And what is so effective about hegemonic systems is they conceal the forces that create those conditions, right? And so people come to think of those conditions as just being like, well, it's, it's like that. And that's the way it is. Well, no, it's like that because it was made like that, right? And so I think it's really important um, in order any kind of activism work, I believe and would argue, has to engage in counter-hegemonic work, right? Like you have to challenge and question the fundamental premise upon which the society is built, right? And so I think, you know, it is the person that asks the question who has more power than the person that gives the answer, right? Because the person who asks the question sets the parameters for the answer. And so I think, you know, thinking about King, um, Martin Luther King Jr., he questioned the fundamental premise of the way, you know, citizens were treated in the United States. And he went to the root, right, of Jim Crow and said this arrangement, right, is the result of laws, it is a result of corrupt practices, it is a result of customs, and that these aren't like 
hard baked in like they can be changed right like you have to believe in in imagining really a different life and so i think you know that's why i would argue that um you know activism in order to be truly liberating has to be counter hegemonic but that doesn't mean you know like one form of counter hegemonic activism does not immunize you from practicing your own kind of hegemony so you could be anti-racist but still enforce sexism right you could Within be anti-sexist right. and still enforce you know like homophobia you could be like so that you you have to, it's like a constant thing you have to constantly be thinking what hegemony are you practicing I mean, and I think King did a couple other things to sort of shape a paradigm of activism that is almost universally accepted to today. Um, he all he questioned those structural forces, and he forced everybody to face their role in it. Yeah. So I think that's something that we're going to talk a lot about in segment two: is thinking about ways that average people, liberals, uh, northerners, um, were able to say, yeah, that's terrible that they're doing that, right? Um, without actually acknowledging their sort of their own complicity in a system, which of course we are all complicit in. And the other thing that he did was he said, I'm all in. Um, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll die for this, right? Like this is an all in situation for me. And that was, a central part of his approach to civil rights agitation. And again, that creates a paradigm, its own paradigm, right. that in a lot of ways has become mythical. How is it that this one person, this one life, has inspired so many different kinds of tributes, so many different kinds of, on, so many different kinds of interpretations? Yeah, and how um, I think it's something that's just so important, and again, that long historical perspective gives you is that the way that we understand King today is not the way that people understood King in 1963, in 1968, in 1978, that this notion of King is very much a product of, of this time and of the distance since his life. Um, but part of what makes those kinds of different interpretations possible, gets to something else that we think is so central to the practice of historical engagement in this moment. And that is, well, we've been really thinking about what does it mean to be a historian in this age where ideas about facts and fake news are sort of bandied around so easily and simply. And I think we want to step away from these notions of fact, which we, I think I would say, heartily don't believe in, um, <laughs> and think instead about evidence. Um, you know, what I think we see going on right now is a paradigm change, and that is one in which faith and empiricism and evidence-based arguments is fading. And this is the great challenge of, of historians right now. It's not about getting the facts right, it's about understanding, interpreting evidence and deploying it for an argument. I mean, so the thing, you know, if someone brings, you know, like a fact is a, it's like a, a it's like an imposing thing and it doesn't require, it's just like, it's a fact. It's a passively consumed thing. Whereas when you bring evidence, evidence invites examination, right? Evidence invites weighing. I mean, you think of like a court, right? Um, you, you don't submit facts to the jury, you submit evidence because the nature of evidence is such that it, it, it's inviting people to be critical. It's inviting people to inquire, to verify or debunk or you know challenge. And I think that's, that's why I think when as, as historians, um, you know, we, we want to think, think about facts. You know, they say you can't argue with facts, but you can argue with evidence, right? And you should. And you should, right? And I think that a lot of what parades itself as facts is really evidence, right? And we should treat what people present as quote-unquote facts as evidence that invites our scrutiny, that invites our critical engagement, that invites our, you know, like sussing out and inquiry. We're 
going to shift away from our sort of more philosophical musings and show you some of the gems that we have here um, in our archives. Um, we've been sort of talking about taking the long view about these sort of unquestioned beliefs that shape the society um, in which we live in. And we defined activism as sort of an active questioning of these unquestioned ideologies, right? So that's the sort of the framework with, with which we're coming to these documents. Like this focus on the civil rights movement as a primarily southern one and sort of mainstream discourse, I think has done an enormous disservice to the North and the structures of inequality and racism in the North because it's allowed people, I mean, I said this a little bit earlier, but like sort of allowed us to say, look at that awful behavior that's going on down there um, and deflect any kind of reflections away from the North or even worse, sort of focus any kinds of legislative changes on a particular region in the country without acknowledging that structure. And so in a lot of ways, we have to think about the limitations of, of that approach. And it also, in a lot of ways, silenced a civil rights movement that did exist in the North and, and in some ways preceded the movement in the South. And that's something that happily our archives, I think, show yeah. so well. But you know, one last thing that I think is very pertinent today is that the, the King paradigm, with that kind of all or nothing approach, um, might alienate people from thinking that they themselves are activists, right? So the idea that activism is a, is a profession, it's something that you have to drop everything and, and, and de devote everything to, you have to put your life on the line for. Those are incredibly powerful and potent ideas, but they can also be alienating. As a historian of gender, I often think about what that means for, for women, women who have like sort of the primary responsibility of their family, um, and what, how you balance activism um, with those roles as well. So again, I just think poking at the, the limits of this paradigm without questioning its influence is important. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's what we call the great man history, right? That we kind of act or think uh, that history is driven by the actions of singular, you know, outsized individuals who tend to be men. Um, and, you know, that marginalizes, silences, erases, conceals the work of so many other people. Um, and what I'm really excited about the, the archive stuff that we're about to look at and talk about are the ways that we see everyday people implicated in the story. Tell us about this Northern Civil Rights Movement. So the Northern Civil Rights Movement was a little bit different than the Southern Civil Rights Movement because there were different circumstances, different, you know, different conditions that people were living in. The issues that people in the North dealt with uh, had to do primarily with housing, uh, job discrimination, housing discrimination, um, city uh, neglect, um, and, and, you know, segregation, which... Um, was, you know, like the segregation in the North was um, so successfully hegemonic <laughs> that, that people thought like, oh, no one's doing this, right? People just end up living where they're living. There's no law. Yeah. Uh, right, like yeah. official law saying this. It's it's just it, that it was practiced in a much more subtle yet right. structural way. And so um, the strategies that people adopted in the North had to be different. One of the things that I always remember being really struck by when I first explored the collection we're going to show you today is um, that the people who were described as being part of CORE were, quote, Negroes, Puerto Ricans, and poor whites, right? Like, it always struck me as, oh, that's such an interesting thing that was articulated in these documents, right? Mm -hmm. And you can see the economic ties of, of these groups collaborating at this particular moment in CORE. But let me tell you a little bit about this collection. It's called the Brooklyn Congress of Racial Equality Collection, it's ARC.002, if you're coming back as a researcher. <laughs> um, and it was donated to the institution by a man named Arnie Goldwag, who was essentially the PR guy for CORE. Um, I tell you this because it's an important part of the way that we analyze things as we think about who donated these things and why they collected the particular things that they collected um, and not others, right? And so we see a lot of press releases in here, and that's because we ha they were from Arnie, right? 
Um, Arnie was also white. He was Jewish. And this was a moment in Coors history before you see um, a sort of a more black power approach where white people were in some in some groups sort of like um, asked to leave civil rights groups in the later 1960s. So this is a moment where you had actually just as many white people working in Coors as you had um, African-American people working in Coors. And we're going to see how that plays out actually in a few of the documents that we're looking at. So should we dig in? Yeah, so um, let's look at um, the documents. And so as we do this, or maybe before we do this, um, tell us, oh, yeah. you know, what are the, what are the ways, um, you know, because you earlier talked about the practice. Yeah. Um, what what are the ways people should approach these documents? Because yeah. they it's not like reading a textbook where it's all laid out for you. You're looking at like flyers and stuff. So what would you? Yeah, do? Um, you know it's so interesting. So I'd say the first thing that we always do, here and I always do, is we look at a document as an artifact first, and that means don't we don't read the text. We look at the document. How big is it? Is it handwritten? Um, is it legible? Um, if it's old, does it have like a seal on it? Um, because the document itself has enormous clues in it that the textual information in it don't, don't, that has nothing to do with. The other thing that I think is important that we do is we read things like three times. Mm-hmm. This is the to me. This is like the hardest nut to crack in the like TLDR world that we live in. The too long and didn't read world that we live in is that it. it, it we need, you need to really carefully read right. things, right? right? This is actually one of the biggest struggles with students. We often tell students to read things two or three times in here or to read them out loud to make sure that they're read. You know, sometimes documents are long and they're, and they're hard to read. And then I think the last thing that I just want to like maybe emphasize about this is thinking about the perspective of the creator and who they envision their audience to be. So um, how are they trying to sell their story, right? Um, and how does the pre- people that they're selling it to shape the way they send that message? And then... In that, what biases can can we can we glean right. from that? And so that's maybe just a, the loose framework by which we'll take some of these documents um, here. So we'll do some close reading. No TLDRing tonight. So this is the first document we want to look at, and for the purposes of our um, our listeners at home, we'll do a little bit of reading here. But per what I just laid out, before we even read anything, we should just look at what this is, which is a press release, because that's what Arnie Goldwag was was good at doing press releases. Probably have like a thousand press releases mm-hmm. in this collection, which is a, made up of about thirty boxes. So do you want to read some? Yes, I'm going to try to read these with my. <laughs> Grandpa eyes. <laughs> well, for for people who will see this, we will post. Um, yeah, we have show notes for each episode where we post like larger resolution versions of our our documents. Um, but even with the larger, it's like fuzzy typewritten, all caps. Well, and let's just point that out and remember something: typed, right? Years before computer. Uh, so you see tons of typos in these, but it also brings up a question before we even get into the text of labor. Right. Um, who is typing these things up? If they mess up the lettering, right. who is fixing these things? Who is running the mimeograph to make sure you get 500 flyers out? So that also puts a little bit of a gendered component on our analysis of this document before we even think about the content. And, and who's delivering it, right? Yeah. So this this document is dated August 11th, 1962. There is no fax machine. There's no broadcast fax. There's no broadcast email. Like someone is hand... Mm-hmm. Like going to each press outlet and handing them mm-hmm. a press release, and so it's really it's really interesting. Um, you know, President Obama said in his speech, his farewell address, um, "Get off the internet, go talk to people in person." Yeah. I don't know if I want to go talk to trolls, but um, I do think that there is an impact that one yeah. has in direct person-to-person communication. Uh, that is much harder to dismiss than an email or a phone call or, you know, so I, I think that they, they, you know, it's like press outlets probably get tons of press releases um, emailed or faxed to them today, right? Back then, you had to, and you had to go hand it to probably an assignment editor. So the person whose job this was um, would have gotten to know after repeatedly doing this over and over again, like who the people were to hand this to to get the story placed. So like, we haven't even read we haven't even read the document yet, but we're already trying to think about what did, what are the implications of a press release as a form of civic engagement, right? What what is the work that's involved there? 
right? So um, do you... Yeah, so there is this bakery in Brooklyn called Ebinger's, um, and it employed mostly white women to serve, and it began expanding locations in black neighborhoods without being willing to hire black people there. And so CORE targeted them as a problematic employer, and they started to set out to try to change this. So what, can, do you think you, your okay. eyes can handle it? <laughs> you notice how I stalled that whole like reading thing? Okay, here we go. Um, after 10 minutes of... Months. Oh, see? This is what happens. Okay. After 10 months of negotiations, picketing, and selective buying resulting in tokenism, we in Brooklyn Core can no longer tolerate the rampant injustice. Extant. Extant. At the Ebinger Baker Company, Ebinger Baking Company, and therefore are staging this drastic protest in accordance with the dictates of our consciences to stop the delivery of cakes that support dis discrimination. I love that. I know. He, he had such a way with words. And actually, there's something in this kind of age of irony that is so earnest about Arnie Goldwag's... Um, racist cakes. Racist <laughs> cakes. He's very dramatic in this. But, like, in a way that, you, like, again, there's a purpose behind it, right? right? I mean, th his... His language is part of his bucket of tactics, right? I mean, he is looking to get press coverage for his movement, right? Yeah. Nobody's paying attention to this. Yeah. And so language for him is a major thing to deploy in terms of getting people to pay attention. Yeah, to and I, I mean, you know, we, I laughed at racist cakes. But um, the, the, the interesting thing here is by saying um, cakes that support discrimination, it, again, is this way of implicating all of us, right? Like you think he's just buying a cake, but you're buying the cake to patronize a business that is practicing discrimination, right? So think about the ways that you're kind of like helping to uphold, hegemonic, helping mm -hmm. to uphold these systems um, that you take for granted as, oh, it's just, I'm just getting cake. Well, what's just cake for you is discriminatory practices for other people. Yeah. And so like, what are, how are we implicated? You know, and I think, I think about our, you know, labor exploited shoes, right? Like think about the things we consume. Our iPhones. How, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like all of these kind of products that we buy that are, that are kind of um, implicated yeah. in systems of exploitation and um, inequity. So, um, like King, he you know says that they're willing to go to jail if need be, um, and then he compares this sort of he's looking that he's looking for positive action from the mayor and the governor, and then this to me this is the part that stood out in this document. He calls out the quote dismal failure on the part of the city and state agencies to enforce compliance with fair employment laws, resulting in paper laws that are laughed at, flouted, and ignored. And to me, this gets at the crux of what the challenge is of this southern northern comparison this idea that there were discriminatory laws in place in the south right and those are really bad and but that racism the way it's practiced here in the north is more de facto it's nobody's fault it's more diffuse and what they're pointing out is it's negative action it's not enforcing laws right that is practicing a racism that is absolutely as effective as what was going on in the south and so they're calling out something that is again just very difficult i would say for yeah. your average white New Yorker to, to face up to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, you know, and I, I flubbed it. I said 10 minutes, but it's they said after 10 months yeah. of negotiations right. and struggle. Right. So, um, you know, people would look at a demonstration or look at a civic action that's more disruptive and not realize that people have tried. Right. They tried to work with the bakery company. They tried to work by appealing to various people in authority. Um, this is not the first uh, uh, resort, right, to be disruptive. Like, they, they spend 10 months. Yep. That's a long time. That's a, almost a year, right, to try to negotiate uh, an improvement in conditions. So we see something similar to what Zahir is saying in our next document. Now, this is a flyer that likely would have been papering neighborhoods around the area, maybe left in car windshields. We have a lot of these. And it's the same thing. In the second paragraph, um, they say, 
We have written to the city officials at least 50 times and to the date, this date have received no results. Now, this is about a different issue. Um, an issue, again, I don't know that we would necessarily associate with the American Civil Rights Movement. This is an issue of state neglect. Um, they're criticizing the placement of stoplights in poor neighborhoods, right? And they're pointing out the dangers to your children. Will your child be next? Again, there's that dramatic language. Um, but it's a very, a very serious issue. But when I looked at this, I was like, oh, my God, they wrote 50 letters yeah. and got no response. I mean, how remarkable. How much labor, how much time that actually took for them to do. It's uh, unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I like that this is, um, you know, like I think, again, the way that we think of civil rights, um, you know, employment discrimination is something that people kind of easily connect with in terms of civil rights. Um, you know, segregated seating, water, water fountains. Um, no one would think about traffic lights, right, mm -hmm. or traffic stops, and the the ways that that reflects, um, you know, uh, discrimination. And so, I think one of the really um, important things that come out of this collection, and we're just only showing you a few documents, but one of the important things that come out of this collection. Is the uh, is the way that um, neighborhoods are constructed, right, um, by laws and enforcement of laws, and also by divestment, mm -hmm. right? That this is a form of neglect uh, to not place traffic lights that imperil the lives and the quality of life of the people who live in these places. I mean, we we've talked in a previous episode. Go check us out, archives. Um, Another campaign that CORE did, right, yep. which was... Operation Clean Sweep, which was a critique of the lack of sanitation in Bed-Stuy, right? And so we don't think about garbage pickup as, like, the premier civil rights issue of the time. CORE did. It was a health issue. It was a danger issue, right? And, again, speaking to their tactics, their yeah. sometimes, like, flamboyant tactics, they gathered up all the garbage in the neighborhood one, one fall afternoon, and they dumped it on the steps of Borough Hall. And they said, here, you won't pick up our garbage? Here it is. Face it. We are invisible in Bed-Stuy. Right. Our garbage isn't invisible right. on the steps of Borough Hall, right? right? So again, I mean, that invisibility. Yeah, and I mean, whether it's garbage that's not getting picked up or the lack of, of, of sufficient traffic lights that make neighborhoods unsafe, that make neighborhoods unsanitary. And if someone were just like riding through this neighborhood, they just look around and be like, oh, you know, like what a trashy neighborhood and not realize that that trashy neighborhood is constructed that way, right? So again, thinking, like pulling back and thinking about how something uh, came to be. And I think, um, you know, this, there in this flyer, they say, we are going to block traffic on Thursday, January 17th at 3 p.m. on the corner of Lexington and Lewis Avenues, right? This is in Bed-Stuy, right? And that's, that's pretty drastic, like to get into traffic. Right. And block traffic. And I think this comes back to what we're thinking about King, um, you know, some people being willing to put their actual bodies um, in, in on the line. And I think it, you can look at the last year or, or even more of of protests around the country, around various issues. I'm thinking of Black Lives Matter and um, various uh, uh, parts of the country where they blocked highways. And you know, this is this is a long tradition of this kind of this kind of work. Yeah, I mean, that's also going to affect people's lives whether they live in that neighborhood or whether they're just driving through. Right. I mean, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. Is what it means to bring this, sh put this up to people's sort of faces in a way that right. actually shapes their lives, starts to make some people. Angry, yeah, right. Um, let's look at one last document. I always say this on the podcast. This is my favorite in the, in the maybe in the whole. Archives. She has like so many favorites. <laughs> don't even. But but yeah, this is a good one. So it's a green flyer, handwritten, Birmingham or Brooklyn. Again, great messaging. Like you get it. Three words, you get it. I'm going to just read from it for our listeners. Miss Edda Mae Cole, Negro, applied for a four-and-a-half-room apartment two weeks ago. Her salary is $5,400 a year and has been employed at the same job for 10 years. She was told that she could not rent the apartment because she's divorced. A white member of CORE, again, the inter interracial group at this moment, applied for a four-and-a-half-room apartment and told them she was divorced. She was told to come and sign the lease in the morning. The conclusion is obvious. 
blatant racial discrimination. Very to the point, right? Um, here's like here's our control and here's our variable. Um, it's blatant racial discrimination. So it goes to show some of the sort of investigative tactics that they were employing as well. But as a gender historian, what I'm always struck with by this is like the sort of the assumptions that or the like the 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 the, the identity politics that isn't questioned here is the question of being a divorced woman. <laughs> like the problem here to everyone's mind is the the race issue. It's not that it's problematic to rent to a divorced woman right. um, in 1963, right? So I think this gets a little bit back to Zahir's point about sort of the multiple hegemons. Like within a movement, there can be a radical, radical approach to racial equality um, without even really poking at the sort of the, the gender implications of it, whether within or without the movement. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think it's it also talks about the importance of having women um, be very active in these movements, right? Because Miss um, th- um, Edamay was a, uh, you know, targeted not just because she was black, but because she was single, yep. right? And so if, if this was a man, maybe they would not have been able to illustrate um, the dispar- disparity, right? Um, and, and then they would have overlooked, right? And it's classic intersectionality yeah. in the sense that divorce means something entirely different when you introduce race to that, right? Yeah. Um, that that experience, that identity of being a divorced woman as a black woman is totally different in this case than it is from being a white woman. So it's just this beautiful yeah. crystallization of yeah, that I mean, idea. Yeah, because you have, you know, certainly in the 1960s, this is a few years prior. Um, we don't know the date of this, but by the Birmingham reference, we're assuming it's around 1963 when the Birmingham campaign was happening. Um, but you have a growing kind of language and among sociologists and and social scientists that pathologizes black women, right? And so Etta May is like in the middle yeah. of the intersection of this this discourse that um, looks at black women as unfit mothers, right? Unable to take care of their families, unable to take care and rear their children correctly. Um, and so she's she's in that. This is what she's experiencing. And it's an ideology promulgated not necessarily by like Strom Thurmond, but right. by liberals, right? By people like Daniel Moynihan, yeah. right? The famous Moynihan report. I, I think like a big takeaway here is CORE's willingness to get in people's faces and CORE's willingness to disrupt p- things. They One of their big tactics was things like blocking traffic, uh, performing sit-ins in the middle of streets. Um, they blocked traffic on the way to the World's Fair mm-hmm. in 1964. And one of the things we've really been thinking about is, in the context of this, is what makes activism successful and what makes activism fail in some ways. Yeah. Um, when radical movements push the issues, when they push on the hegemonic structures, and that kind of backlash comes from your average, your average white Brooklynite, right? Well, you know, and this is where I come back to Martin Luther King. Um, you know, again, not to freeze him in any one moment in time, but certainly one of the moments in time that I really, really, um, I would have to say, fell in love with his thinking um, is his when he wrote the letter from Birmingham jail. And if you have never read that letter, this is a magnificent document. It is a defense of civil disobedience. It echoes Henry David Thoreau's civil disobedience essay from like 1849. And there's so many gems in it, but one of the things that he talks about is making the distinction between a negative piece with no tension versus a positive peace with justice, right? And so like how we often think of talking about race in America, um, a lot of times we wanna talk about race relations, like that's dealing with the absence of tension, where we, and Martin said, we should talk about racial Mm -hmm. justice, right? And he, you know, he said like, Yes, the the purpose of nonviolent direct action is to cause disruption. It is to create tension. He has this really, really cool quote 
um, what he says is to create a tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal. Well, we need a lot of that kind of tension right now to awaken people's critical faculties. I mean, I think just listening to you here, Zahir, it makes me think about something, a, sort of a tension with activism that you and I often talk about, which is how how you either try to transform or yeah. you protect and survive, right? Um, and I think this brings us back to today a little bit. We have our own sort of structures of ideology and power that we are now facing today. And um, what do we do? Do we try to transform? What are we willing to risk? There's a lot at risk. Yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, I think it's... Um it's not an easy, everyone has their own answer, right? And everyone is not going to be able to put themselves in the street. Um, I always point out to people, you know, 250,000 people went to the March on Washington. Where was everyone else, mm -hmm. right? You know, I can't judge what people were doing. I mean, again, there's this, this it's almost like it's on a spectrum, survival versus transformation, right? And some people can, some people just, they just have to worry about like, Edamame needs a place to live, yeah. right? That's right? Somebody needs to find a job to feed their babies. Right. That is a form of civic engagement, right? To take care of yourself and your family, right? Um, and others, they can go all in. You know, Martin went all in to the detriment of his own life, right? Trying to transform the system. I think it's time to hear what you guys think. Um, yes. What is it? What does civic engagement mean to you in this day and age, and has it changed? Um, hello, uh, my name is Ethan Barnett. I'm a student at Brooklyn College, so I don't. I guess I'm not. Well, civic engagement looks like so many things. Um, you know, there's the academic form that we're seeing here. And I was thinking back to your first question about the bubble, and how we think of the bubble in New York. And I think for a while there was like, we have this protection um, that we follow the tradition of being like a liberal blue, you know, space where everyone's accepted. Um, and then I'm relatively familiar with like Brooklyn core and thinking back to that time period, like post-World War II, when there's like a lot of anti-Semitism in New York City. And it's like the same Islamophobia, same form of Islamophobia that we see today, but we don't tend to think about that. You know, we don't think about Crown Heights as a space where we have, um, you know, Ebbets Field, but it's also a space where people are being screamed at on the street for following their faith, you know? Um, and even when we think about the March on Washington, it's this very exciting moment where 250,000 people go to Washington but then you think about, um, you know, the February 3rd, 1964 school boycott where 460,000 students and, you know, 3,000 teachers protest. And it's like, you know, why don't we bring that up when we're talking about the voices of Brooklyn? Because I think if we think about that moment and, you know, just having your child stay home or having your child participate in a freedom school and just make the connection that, you know, having education spaces, you know, as like the, as the base that allows for like quality in all parts of the city. Cause I think that's something we easily forget. I, I don't remember how long ago it was, but there's, you know, there's, there's schools in New York city for kindergartners that cost $40,000. And then there's schools in New York city that don't even get $40,000 to be funded. And it's like, what sort of systems as educators are we looking at like when we don't even start popping those bubbles or we don't bring that up you know every time that we bring our kids to the school bus or we bring them to the subway station um snaps to that i mean i think honestly that is one of my big concerns about new york's reaction to the election at this moment is that we can look around us and see different colors um, of skin and we can see different religions and we can deeply honor the diversity that we witness but the 
danger, I think, is actually us also forgetting the enormous structures of inequality that shape life in Brooklyn today. And in a lot of ways, Crown Heights, the neighborhood that you bring up, kind of represents it so beautifully, I think, in two ways, both the, the school segregation that you talk about, which is, I think, in a lot of ways, one of the major civil rights issues that New York faces today and one that nobody can seem to figure out. And the other is gentrification, right? Um, and so uh, this is not to knock us for celebrating the pluralism of our city, but it, it really has to be done with a reflection that the sort of the indictments that I was making about the white liberal New Yorkers in the 1960s continue to continue to hold today in the ways that, that you describe, for sure, yeah. Mic check, one, two, one, two. <laughs> so I kind of wanted to touch on uh, something you said earlier as far as, uh, um, you said how I wrote it down. As far as people listening, and yes. that's my biggest thing. I think people listen with the intent to reply instead of understanding. So I always tell people, I tell my girlfriend all the time that I'm like, she's from Arkansas. I would never know what it's like to be a, so I feel a little nervous for some reason, but <laughs> I don't know why. Like I, I know what I want to say, but uh, but I tell her all the time that it's like, I would never know what it's like to be a white woman from Arkansas. I'm born and raised in Brooklyn and this is, I, I know what it's like to be obviously a black man from Brooklyn. I would never know what it's like to be a white man from Long Island. So people just need to be more objective and that's the only way things can happen. I don't know why I'm so nervous, but, <laughs> but uh, I, just, I, just, I just think people need to be more objective um, and just start listening with the, instead of like just, just replying, because I think more people just listen with the intent of replying instead of understanding. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I like how you put that. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah, I agree. Um, that, that's the distinction between critical listening and empathetic listening, right? Critical listening is like, you already like gear it up. Like, and you, you see this, especially in social media, like the exchanges people, people are just like ready to like take the points down, right? And, and I, I like how you put that, listening with the intent to reply. Which which really means you're you're half listening, yeah. right? You're planning because you're planning, right? <laughs> half of you is listening for the person is saying, but you're really listening for the things you got something to say for. You know, so I like that. I like that a lot. You know, I feel like earlier I said, you know, like oh, you have to learn how to do document analysis. You have to learn how to read a document. I, and I'm not saying this like in a joking way at all. Actually, we need to learn how to listen. Um, I actually think there could be benefit to just taking a class on listening and at it being at the like a regular part of the curriculum from the primary level up um because it, it's not something that we are ever really taught to do yeah. you know i mean the, the thing about listening that's interesting i mean and i i'm always cautious about counseling people to listen more is that um a lot of us are socialized so that like people who are um, in less privileged positions are often socialized to listen to people who are in more privileged yeah. positions. And this happens like uh, by age, by gender, like men are socialized to be listened to, women are socialized to do a lot of listening, you know, uh, managers are, are, are supervised to like tell, right? Like, and so I think, I don't wanna say listen to say to people, you know, don't speak truth to power, like, you know, power needs to also practice listening, right? And so, I, you know, it's not like you go, like if you go to a demonstration and everyone's just quiet because you're listening. So I don't want to, I don't want to say that, but I, I do think that there is, there are power uh, dynamics involved in listening. And I think, um, but as we said before, like we, we all kind of impose our own hierarchies, right? Like we have to be very cognizant of the ways that we may be trying to dismantle one form of, of inequality that and we may be practicing others because of course there's stories within like various movements where you know these were like vanguard movements that were fighting injustice but then kind of imposing it within their own membership and so I think I think it's it's important for all of us to practice listening to become kind of awakened to the kind of privileges we occupy in any kind of particular interpersonal situation. Uh, my name's Fanny, and I'm studying oral history at Columbia University. <laughs> um, 
two things. One is I propose Brooklyn Historical Society um, put together a workshop on listening because I know Sahir, <laughs> you've talked about this a lot and you've also talked about what does it mean to be an institution that listens to the neighborhood that it's in. So I think that would be a great idea and I would definitely come to that. Um, two is... Uh, I've been talking a lot of to a lot of friends who are kind of overwhelmed about where to start to begin to be an activist. And I think you don't need to, activism doesn't mean that you protest in the streets and you yell and you're super loud and militant. Activism is starting where you're at and what you can do and what skill you can do. If you really like doing social media, for example, and you're always on Twitter, activism could be engaging on Twitter with conversations that are happening. If you like to host events, you know, host a party where you have uh, intellectual conversations about where to help and what communities need help. Um, and third, something that I've been really awakened to here in New York is that um, the, the themes and questions of this election are not exclusive to one community. I, I'm doing a, an oral history project on Central American refugees, but I just went to visit the Museum of Chinese in America and learned about detention centers and the Chinese Exclusion Act. And now Central Americans are kind of being the largest population that are being held in detention centers in the US. So it's all interconnected and related. And if you fight for one thing, chances are, it relates to something else. Thank you. Okay, well, if for those of you who are regular listeners, we do a little endorsing and then we say goodbye. So we hope you'll stick around for that because um, we always have great things to recommend to bring you back here to Brooklyn Historical Society. But I think maybe first we just want to reiterate two re endorsements that we already sort of stated. And mine is Ann Moody's Coming of Age in Mississippi. So I, I highly encourage you slash coerce you to go out and get that remarkable book and, and read it soon. And mine is Letter from a Birmingham Jail. And we'll have links to both of these um, in our show notes. Truly one of the pieces, great pieces of American writing. Remarkable. And then the uh, last one is an event that's taking place here at BHS on February 7th at 7 p.m. It's called Black Voices, Black Art, Upending Convention with Kelly Jones and Kimberly Drew. Um, the tickets are 10 bucks, five for members. Do you want to describe it? Yeah, art historian, curator, and MacArthur Genius Award winner. Uh, Kelly Jones has both rewritten and rectified the narrative of American art history by shepherding dozens of overlooked black artists into a canon that was narrowly white. Uh, with her single-minded focus on contemporary art of the African diaspora, she has literally curated change. She discusses her career at this event, activism and vision for the future with trailblazing social media maven and blogger Kimberly Drew, AKA at Museum Mammy. So you should definitely check that event out. With this live episode of Flatbush in Maine, we have yet again made Brooklyn history. Thanks to all of our guests, all of you. Please give yourselves a round of applause. Brooklyn is in the house. So for our listeners at home you and you guys, you can learn more about Flatbush and Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush-maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of these amazing documents and artifacts, and for most episodes, clips of oral histories. On your seat, there was a card, a postcard, which tells you how to find us. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use to listen to us. Our broadcast show music is by Joe Schloss. You'll hear it in the broadcast. Um, you can find out more about him at josephshloss.com. Our production associate is Andrew Caberline, uh, who's been monitoring the mix for us. Done it without him. So tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history from this beautiful Othmer Library at Brooklyn Historical Society. We are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia. Thanks. Woo! <laughs>